0: Hebrews Chapter four. Don't worry, we we'll, we're gonna motor. Grace and help when you need it most. Hebrews four, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy and and find grace to help in our time of need. Sorry. There are some... um, attending dangers when you're studying right through a book of the Bible. Any book of the Bible, but especially kind of a tightly packed, reasoned book like Hebrews. It's not a light book. Because a series like this is carried out over many weeks, it's, it's easy to press forward not remembering... ...past ideas, repeated ideas and themes. And, and there are some themes that we've studied in the past... ...that continue to shed important light on what we're going to study in the future... ...so you have to remember them. This is the third time in 28 verses... ...that our writer has urged his readers to, to continue... ...strongly pressing into the implications of their faith in Jesus Christ. Saw it in chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 3.14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So our writer is like he's like a big dog with a bone in this repeated concern. He, he won't let this idea slip away from our minds. Holding on to our confession isn't automated. It takes. Great concentration, it takes educated trust, and it takes persistent effort. You can never stop pressing, pushing, straining. Today's text is a little unique in that what our writer does is he piles up some encouragement to to lift our hopes for Success in pressing, straining, continuing, persevering in the faith. That's what we're going to look at in this teaching. Point number one. Repeated calls to hold fast our confession imply a constant opposition to continuance in faith. If I tell you to continue what you're doing, then you'll just keep doing it. But if I tell you to brace yourself, and hold on in order to continue what you're doing, suddenly you're going to understand that, okay, then there must be forces working against keeping going. You would understand it isn't going to be easy. You would understand it isn't going to be automatic to continue to press on. You you would, you would dig in in order to keep going. That's the message of our text, verse 14. Let us, let us hold fast our confession. And that single Greek word, krateo, is most commonly translated, get this, to seize. There's exertion in the word. There's strained muscles in it. Like the way you hold on to your end of the rope in a tug of war. This is so important. You see, you wouldn't think, in a world like ours, you wouldn't think it would even be possible for Christians to forget the energy and stamina required to follow Christ. But it is. The Apostle Peter tells his Christian readers, it is unreasonably common to... ...to move on from initial conversion... ...when you were saved... ...to your ongoing life in Christ... ...with an unprepared mind... ...as to what's required to keep going. That's in 1 Peter 4. Let me just show it to you. 12 and 13. Beloved. See these words? Do not be surprised... ...at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings... ...that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed... ...when he comes again. Do you see it? Peter... Peter has this gentle rebuke for Christians who seem genuinely confused and surprised that something as wonderful as gospel, faith, and following Christ would encounter so much hatred and suffering and ridicule and persecutions. These Christians, to whom Peter writes, they hadn't formed any categories of thought to expect such a tough road. Or, in the words of Jesus, such a narrow, hard gate. And so, according to the words of Peter, and according to our text in Hebrews, the one thing a disciple must never say when there is nothing but pressing trouble from every side, the one thing a professing Christian must never say is, boy, I never dreamed it would be like this with Jesus at the center of my life. I never thought it would make life harder. And to that comment, the New Testament would say, "Well, well, what in the world were you thinking? How could you possibly be surprised by this? A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated Jesus, of course they'll hate you. Give your head a New Testament shake. But there's something more than just warning in this text. Point number two. There is divine help for both our sense of inward unworthiness. That's how we come to church, isn't it? Divine help for both our sense of inward unworthiness and, and the actual imperfections of our own obedience. I changed righteousness to obedience this morning. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Since then we have, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I want to talk about that. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for... So here's, here's the reason we can do this, hold fast. For we do not have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses... ...but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, and it's, again, just a, a broad biblical principle... See the ways of God in His Word. I love the balance warning, promise, seriousness, hope. We we need to capture that method in all of our teaching and all of our studying. So our writer moves from a pretty serious warning to, to pressing encouragement into our minds. Here we are, people we all carry around our unworthy selves. We know the difference between the purity of heart that we long for, the difference between that and what Peter calls the inward struggle with the passions of the flesh that war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11. Peter knew the weight of that total unworthiness when following his, his Lord. I think all of us, all honest disciples, they know what was going on in Peter's heart when he saw that miraculous catch of fish at Jesus' command. And as soon as he sees all of that, he looks at Jesus, Luke 5, 8, depart, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I, I, don't, I don't belong with you, I'm sorry. We all know Peter's words inside our own skins. Our our faith is not always steady. My progress in striving against sin is uneven. Even the things we do in devotion to the Lord, they seem so tainted and unable to stand on their own merit. Our, Our very best... Our very best efforts for the Lord need so much grace just to carry them along, don't they? So, how shall people like we hold fast our confidence? On what what foundation can our confidence stand? That's the haunting issue that our writer unpacks in these verses. And... And the important point to notice is, quite surprisingly, I would say, he doesn't point us directly to the cross where our forgiveness was purchased. You see it in that 14th verse. He he points us post-cross, after the event of the crucifixion. He points us to that time when the disciples saw Jesus, as he quotes, verse 14, passed through the heavens. He points his readers... To our Lord's ascension. As a source of their confidence. And perseverance. And, And there's a reason for that. We are, all of us, too quickly inclined to think of the work of Christ on our behalf just being finished at the cross. And it is finished. Jesus said so. In the sense that there are no other sacrifices remaining for my pardon. But while that atoning work is finished, our writer is trying to remind me that it's also ongoing. And our writer is telling us that that our perception, our consideration, our thinking about the kind of high priest we currently have, he says... There's the secret to perseverance and holding on. There's the secret to competence. The kind of high priest we have right now. See, it's one thing to know the record of your past sins has been erased. It's another thing to hold on to grace in the face of present unworthiness and failure and struggle. And our writer is telling me That when you lose hope or cast away confidence, when that happens, it comes from not appreciating the nature of my high priest, Jesus, the Christ. He says that in that 15th verse. We do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I'd like you to notice just how that verse starts. He starts with what we do not have. There's a certain kind of high priest we don't have. Well, what kind is that? Let me give you an example. I'm just going to read it quickly. It's in 1 Samuel 2, 12-17... Eli's the priest. His sons fall in line under the priesthood. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. There you go. This is what they did at Shiloh, the holy place, to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let me burn the fat first, that was the practice. And then take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There are lots of examples of those kind of priests in the Old Testament. Just read it. They cared more for themselves than for the people they served. I hope you see where I'm going with this. It's really precious to me. They served with impure motives. They were so weak in the flesh that they couldn't remain faithful to their tasks. God's people were surrounded with imperfect priests... ...and they suffered greatly for it. This is what our writer in Hebrews is getting at in that 15th verse... ...when he says, we don't have a high priest like that. Not Jesus. We don't have a high priest who forgets to put us first... And himself second. We don't have a high priest with corruptible motives. We don't have a high priest with a personal agenda. We don't have a high priest who forgets why he's there. We don't have a high priest who forgets about the weak and the failing and the discouraged. We don't have a high priest who has any hesitation whatsoever to constantly offer sympathy and help. The primary reason for our encouragement is the mysterious incarnational nature of our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Tempted as we are ...yet without sin. We have, a, we have a divine, perfectly sinless, yet fully human, tempted, and unforgettably sympathetic high priest. That's what we have. And he brings these unique qualifications into his priestly work on our behalf. We looked at this already in chapter 2, but I want to just open it up again think again for a minute about what's going on when Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection. I know you know the passage. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace be to you." They were startled, frightened, thought they saw a spirit. Lots of people that think that's just a spiritual resurrection of Jesus. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled?" Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Then he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Notice those words. Notice those words for a minute. Touch me and see. Touch and see don't seem to go together. I can see all of you. And I'm not touching any of you. It's not that I don't like you. I just don't happen to be. You don't have to touch something in order to see it. You can see the sun. You can see the moon. You can see stars. Question. What were they going to see by touching that they couldn't see without touching? The risen Christ, their their soon-to-be-ascended high priest, was, was still a man. He had a body that was, like theirs, at least in this sense, still physical, still material. As they touched him, they would have a deeper sense that he was still one of them. Touch me and see. Get it. This is a warm, living truth, church. This is not some cold theological debate here. Let me ask you this question about your spiritual failures. Think it through honestly, okay? Just in your own skull. Do some work right now. When you go to the Lord with your sin... Or for me, when I go to the Lord, when I've sinned again. How do you picture the divine response? Because you can't see Jesus. How do you picture the divine response when you go to him with another sin yet again? Do you see a perfectly holy God gradually getting a little more impatient with your lack of spiritual progress? ...honestly, do you? Do you picture a pardon... ...but kind of a stern pardon... ...and it's, and it's granted with... ...a fading patience? All right. All right, we'll let it, another... ...more grace. Or do you see something like this? Do you confess your sin to the Lord... ...your faithful high priest... And picture him, just picture him saying something like this. Don, I remember what it was like to be tempted like that. I remember those 40 days in the wilderness and that confrontation with the devil. It was a very hard time. And while I never gave in, I get where you are. Coming with that sin again. And I would submit to you there's all the difference in the world in holding on to your confidence with what viewpoint you have. While never patient with hidden sin, talked about that when I was sitting down there, or proud sin, our sympathetic high priest always, always, always always feels with us in our repentance. Never against us. That's the encouragement the writer is holding up before us in this wonderful text. Three. For every disciple there will come occasions when we stand in need of deeper help. I I don't know how many times I've read this verse and not seen it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mark those words. In time of need. There's a a distinction made in seasons and circumstances. Those words, in time of need, they, they differentiate my normal ...ongoing daily need of divine grace... ...those times when every moment of every day... ...I'm constantly in need of grace and favor... ...they contrast that with other times... ...that can only be described as times of really desperate need. We need to consider those times. Because they're different. They're different from the times I used to sing about in church... I need thee every hour. You ever sing that? This is different. Time of need. Time of need. Let me share some. Times of persecution. This is the specific situation that gives birth to this letter to the Hebrews. He addresses Christians not long out of Judaism and their choice to stand for Christ is not going to go unchallenged. There's tremendous pressure to conform to their previous culture. Did everybody hear it? Tremendous pressure to conform to their previous culture. Stand for Christ would not be tolerated. That's the time of need. The text I'm not going to take the time to read Hebrews 10, 32 to 36, you can look at it at home. But there are moments that awaken your awareness that your faithfulness to the lordship of Jesus aren't going to be tolerated by the surrounding culture. You're not going to be persecuted in any way, shape, or form for showing saying love one another, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're not going to be persecuted for building hospitals, working with street ministries, and you should, absolutely should, show the love of Jesus in those ways. But you will, you will be intensely persecuted if you decide to abhor what is evil. You're not getting off scot-free with that. That's, is that racist, scot-free? Probably is, isn't it? I didn't even think about saying. Sorry if someone's... These are times of special need. It takes, it takes no special grace just to closet your faith. It takes no special grace to modify the aspects of discipleship... ...that don't fit with the values of the people you're with. It takes no grace whatsoever called compromise. But there's another and better response in that time of need. You can go again in earnest to your faithful high priest. And he's called that because he remained faithful. You see, he was mocked. You ever been mocked for being a Christian? He was slandered. He was lied about. He was ridiculed. People spat on Jesus. They spit on him. And he went through it all, never giving up on you. He was committed to your redemption when everyone else was against it. He knows what it's like to remain visibly committed to a culturally despised mission. Did you hear that? He knows what it means to be visibly committed to a culturally despised mission. Go to him in your time of need. There are times of temptation. Sin is always at the door, that's true enough, but there are times... ...especially inviting to unchristian attitudes... ...and unchristian responses. Times when other people have been appreciated... ...and you haven't been. Times when being mistreated by others... ...that made it seem legitimate to hold anger and guilt... it just made it seem just. Those are some urgent times of need... ...where my own judgment unaided by divine grace will not be adequate to see things as they really are times of need there's also times of suffering without special grace we'll find it hard to see any profit in our suffering only by staying extremely close to our lord will we look at our present suffering with a higher understanding we need help with this paul did second corinthians 12 you know these words so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger from satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me Come to the throne of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice that reference to God's great grace as Paul approached the throne of grace three times with this persistent need. My grace is sufficient. And That that transition in Paul is striking. The move from asking for relief... To boasting in his pain. You only get that from the throne of grace. And lastly. Here's another time of need. Maybe you're here. There can come those most dangerous times of all to the soul. Those times when you can't make yourself. There come certain moments that can be destiny shaping. There come certain seasons where without divine help we can turn in the opposite direction to the throne of grace. And the only other direction is pretending everything's fine. And only the throne of grace can undo that not- ...of self-deception. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... ...take heed, lest he fall. There's there's this element of self-confrontation... ...in this time of need. There's self-humbling. Sometimes, before brothers and sisters in Christ... ...admitting... But this is the only path to the promise of help at the throne of grace. Helping grace almost always hurts in its first touch. When we find we can't care as we should about the things of Christ. And the fourth point, and there's only a third of a page of notes. In your deepest time of need, Always remember that you're coming to a throne. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the, wouldn't you have said altar or something like that? Or the cross of grace or the something? We need this reminder that divine grace is more than just pity, it's more than just forgiveness, too. Divine grace carries the provision of divine power. Divine grace in my time of need comes with divine authority. Divine grace in my time of need comes with the capacity to recreate what's broken. It launches new beginnings. It protects you from falling. So, come boldly. Come boldly. Coming to one who is tempted just like you are. he understands he's sinless he's on the throne there's grace to help in your time of need let's pray